Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Revelation 3, 7-13. This is the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on it on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Please pray with me. Our Father, we're so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for Jesus. It's just so great to to worship him in both of these services this morning. And now as we come to your word, we pray that it would be transformative, as was already mentioned, Lord. We, We require your Holy Spirit to make this difference in our hearts, and we pray that he would do that this morning for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please be seated. As you know, we live in or near the Mile High City. Perhaps you've also traveled to the Windy City, or maybe Motor City, maybe even to Sin City. These nicknames come from features of the city, but one nickname is actually derived from its literal name, the City of Brotherly Love. And now I'm not talking about the one with great cheesesteak sandwiches or the statue of Rocky Balboa, but the ancient Middle Eastern city, as my Kids might say the OG Philadelphia. And the letter we will look at this morning was written to the church in that city. If you remember about a month ago, uh, we looked at at the letter to the church at Pergamum. Well, I find it interesting that Philadelphia was actually named by the king of Pergamum 200 years earlier. Because of that king's devotion to his own brother. It's actually a great story of brotherly love that stands in the background here. There were two brothers who were sons of the king of Pergamum, and the elder brother, as was the case in those days, was slated to be the next king. However, he was fighting in a distant war, and it was reported that he'd been killed in battle. So the younger brother was declared to be king in his place. Well, it turns out the report was false, and the elder brother was very much alive. And the plot thickens. When he returned, the younger brother could have easily followed the course of history and human nature by keeping control of the throne 
and having his brother killed, but he didn't do that. He willingly yielded control of the kingdom back to his older brother. This was a rare demonstration of humility. And even more impressive is that later, the Romans secretly contacted the younger brother and conspired to help him overthrow his brother so he could assume power once more. And again, he refused. The elder, the elder brother uh, was very thankful for both of these acts of kindness toward him. And to honor his younger brother's love, he took one of the cities in his kingdom and renamed it Love for Brother, Philadelphia, as a tribute and memorial. Yet, as Wyma insightfully notes, as inspiring as this story about the name of the city might be, and while there may have been much talk of love in ancient Philadelphia, there was one group of people who experienced no love from this city at all, and those were the followers of Jesus Christ. The church at Philadelphia was likely founded by the Apostle Paul in his extended Ephesian ministry that we read about in Acts. Now, the main context here in Philadelphia that we have to understand as we go through this letter is this. Remember, the church came out of Judaism. The earliest Christians were all Jewish. We see in Acts that the Apostle Paul, he'd go into a new city, and he would start by teaching in the synagogue. This was the Jewish place for teaching, for study, and for worship. And many places where Jesus was not embraced as the Messiah, Christians would be put out of the synagogue. In fact, we even see this back in the Gospels. Remember in John chapter 9, when Jesus heals the man born blind, the Pharisees bring the man's parents in, remember this, and ask about this healing. Remember what the parents say. They didn't want to say anything. Ask him. They said, he's old enough to speak for himself. And John, the narrator, adds this comment. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. And this was a big deal. It wasn't just like losing your admission to your preferred place of worship and you go somewhere down the street. No, you were basically ostracized by the community. Today, we might say they were canceled. There were economic implications. They would have a very difficult time buying and selling. There were political implications. And no longer protected from the Romans. Remember, the, Jew, the Jews were protected under Roman law. Christianity was not exempt. So over time, Jewish leaders would close the door on Jesus' followers in the synagogue, excommunicating them from synagogue membership. And this was a really serious thing to be put out. The synagogue had a lot of power in their society. Well, as we will see in this letter from Jesus to this church, he talks a lot about power. He wants to encourage them by understanding the true power dynamics as it relates to himself. So, let's first look, number one in your outline, his power over entrance into the kingdom. Please read with me in your own Bible, starting in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. 
So Jesus starts with three titles for himself here in verse 7, and they all directly relate to the situation here in Philadelphia. First, he's the Holy One. This is a not-so-subtle way of saying that he is God. Okay, Isaiah, in particular, is replete with references to the Holy One of Israel. So the one for whom they're suffering is the omnipotent God of the universe. Second, He's the true one. As he says later in verse 9, those in the synagogue are liars. Jesus is the true one. Make no mistake, the gospel of Jesus Christ is true. In other words, despite your suffering, you're not on the wrong side here. Think about us. When everything may be turning against us, from media, politics, economics, the academy, and God seems absent or silent, we can be deceived, can't we? Don't be deceived, Jesus says. I'm the true one. I never break my word. Third, he has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. Remember, the unbelieving Jews had closed the door on them. Jesus says, I have the key of David, and this door is a lot more important. This is the door to the kingdom. Okay, David is obviously the great king of Israel to whom a son was promised in that great covenant. The son who would reign in an everlasting kingdom. And Jesus, of course, is that great son of David. We see it right away in Matthew chapter 1 and throughout the Gospels. So Jesus has the key to the kingdom. This key signifies authority to control entrance into the kingdom. Those whom he lets in, he keeps in. And no one gets in without him. He's the door. He's the way, right? No one comes to the Father except through him. Back in Isaiah 22, we read this. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and no one shall shut. He shall shut and no one shall open. At that time in Jerusalem, Eliakim was appointed as chief steward over Hezekiah's household. He was the master of the palace. Total control over who has access to the king and his household. Jesus has total control over access to the kingdom and the household of God. Now, in verse 8, we see his encouragement for this church. I know your works. I have set before you an open door. Now, some commentators have taken this open door to mean an opportunity for service. We see this, this phrase used this way elsewhere in the New Testament. Paul, for instance, prays for an open door for ministry. That's a possible reading. And you'll, if you'll pardon the pun, it would have really opened the door for some cool application points in my sermon. However, it seems much more likely he's using open door the same way he just used it. That is to say... It is an open door to the kingdom. He's given them access to the kingdom, and it is secure. No one can change that. Jesus has total control over who has access to the new Jerusalem, the the future kingdom. He's telling them, you may have been kicked out of the synagogue, but you're not kicked out of the kingdom. Neither the Romans nor the Jews control that. I do. They think they can control access to the house of God and expel Jesus' followers, but it is Jesus, not the synagogue leaders, who determine access to his household. 
Think about Jesus' words for us today. You may lose your tax-exempt status. You may be canceled. But I determine who enters the kingdom and who doesn't. And nothing, not even the gates of hell, shall prevail against it. If you belong to Jesus, no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. Praise God. Now, in the second second, uh, aspect of verse 8, we see uh, a key statement that really sets up the rest of the letter and really right into our application later. He says, you have but little power, yet you've kept my word and not denied my name. Importantly, Jesus acknowledges to them they don't have a lot of power. They're not big players on the stage. They're not a big success story on the news. They're not an impressive church from the world's standpoint. But they're faithful, and that's what matters. Their little power is irrelevant because the power they need comes from Jesus. Second, let's look at his power to vindicate against opponents. Please read with me in verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Some strong words from Jesus about this synagogue. Like the synagogue in Smyrna, he calls this the synagogue of Satan. These are Jews that have rejected their true Messiah and are walking in darkness. They claim to be true Jews but are not. As Paul says in Romans 2, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And in Galatians 6, the Israel of God includes only those Jews who have embraced Jesus as their Messiah. So, this synagogue of Satan comprises liars, those who claim to be God's people but are not. In the Gospels, Jesus says to their predecessors, your father, the devil. There's a great reversal in the future, which Jesus loves to do. These people who, who, were, who expelled them from the synagogue will bow down before these very believers and will learn that Jesus loves them, he says. This is submission, not worship. As Gundry says, they will kowtow before them. These Jews expected others to bow and scrape before them in the messianic kingdom, but this flips the script. Jesus is the Messiah, And those who follow him are on the inside. They who reject him are on the outside because they're not true Jews. This is the hope of vindication for these Jesus followers. And those who oppose them will will finally be made aware that God's true love is for those who have believed in Jesus. Third, his power to protect during the hour of trial. Look at verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Jesus tells them that because of their faithfulness and perseverance, he's going to keep them in some way from a trial that's coming. Now, some of you may be aware that this verse is frequently discussed by those who enjoy debating end times events. 
this particular, uh, the idea of the rapture of the church and whether Christians will be physically removed from the world before what is called the Great Tribulation. I want to look at this passage in light of that, but I first want to frame the discussion in terms of relative importance. Christians have a tendency uh, to focus on things we disagree on because that's what's interesting to debate, right? And those things are important to discuss, but we need to remember not everything is equally clear from Scripture. We need to have proper humility about how dogmatic we should be on things that are less clear and really not essential to the Christian faith. What is essential and something that all Christians must believe is that Jesus is coming back to reign forever. And we will be with him as believers in the new heaven and new earth for all eternity. This is the great hope of the Christian that's peppered throughout the New Testament. Now, Far less important than that truth is whether there will be a physical kingdom on earth before this eternal kingdom and new creation. In other words, an intermediate kingdom where Jesus will literally fulfill the kingdom promises to David and other prophecies in a thousand year reign on earth before the eternal kingdom. We believe that he will. And this belief is reflected in our Orchard doctrinal statement. But this debate is not something that should divide Christians. A thousand years is a snap in the finger compared to the eternal kingdom, which again is the great hope of all believers. I mention that for context because even less significant than that question by far is the three and a half or seven year period which Christians may or may not go through depending on one's view of the rapture and whether Christians are taken out of the world before that period. Again, good Bible scholars disagree on this question. In fact, we deliberately do not take a position on this question in our doctrinal statement. I'm not saying that the rapture or the tribulation are not important questions and should not be studied. What I am saying is that we need to keep things in perspective in terms of how certain we can be biblically as it relates to this relatively unimportant doctrine. Now let's look closer at verse 10. There's an hour of trial that's coming to the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So first, what is this trial? We see references in the prophets to the great and terrible day of the Lord, a period of unprecedented judgment and suffering prior to the restoration of all things at the end of the age. In the book of Daniel... And in the Gospels, we see references to the Great Tribulation. We see later in Revelation a brief period of intensified persecution, an escalation, as it were, of God's wrath against those who dwell on the earth. Jesus says, I will keep you from this hour of trial. And the million-dollar question, of course, is what does he mean by keep you from? It could mean protect you or remove you. Both are possible readings. If it means remove you, this would align nicely with the rapture. An additional secret return of Christ, physically removing them during this period, and that may be the correct view. However, if it means protect you from, it would be more aligned with the kinds of promises we see throughout Revelation and other places in the New Testament, where believers are promised that they will be protected from spiritual harm eternally. They'll be safeguarded 
from apostasy when persecuted, not necessarily exempt from physical suffering. So they're protected from the wrath of God against unbelievers, but they're not protected from suffering from Satan. Now, this reading wouldn't necessarily mean that the rapture before the tribulation is wrong. It would just mean that this isn't the best scripture to support that view. In my personal view, I think protect you from, not remove you from, is the better reading. And I'll just give you a few reasons. First, nowhere else in Revelation are believers promised exemption from physical suffering. Rather, they're to expect it. In chapter 6, we read the souls who who are already slain are waiting for the full number of their fellow servants to be complete, who are to be killed as they had been. So not physically removed, but killed. Earlier, he writes to the only other completely faithful church, Smyrna, and tells them to be faithful unto death in their tribulation. But I think the most compelling reason to me is that there's only one other place in the New Testament where these two words are used together, keep from. And that is in John 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer for believers, where he asks the Father to keep them from the evil one. Here is the spiritual protection. In fact, uh, Jesus even clarifies there, if you remember the passage, what he's not saying. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So at least there, it's not removal, but spiritual protection from evil forces. Regardless of, and and if this wasn't interesting, you can dial back in now. Regardless of which interpretation is correct, here's what everyone agrees with, and here's the point. The reason they're protected, Jesus says, is their faithfulness. They have kept his word about patient endurance, so he will keep them from the hour of trial. That's the reason he's protecting them. Whether the great tribulation or any other horrific trial to which Christians have been and will be subjected, keeping the word of Jesus is what enables us to persevere in any kind of trial because it is by his power we are protected. Finally, number four, his power to fulfill promises. Let's read the last three verses, starting in verse 11. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Normally, this is the point in the letter to the outpost, as we've called them, where the correction would come. But like with the church in Smyrna, where Rick preached on, Philadelphia does not get any correction. Instead, Jesus gives this church encouragement and exhortation related to his promises. So hold fast what you have, lest your crown be taken. Now, this crown is not the kind that royalty wears, but it's what a a victor in the games would wear, a wreath of victory. The ancients may have been just as obsessed with sports as our culture today. We're always dropping sports metaphors. Don't strike out. Don't fumble at the goal line. 
Well, as a preacher, I find great encouragement in the fact that even Jesus uses sports illustrations. These wreaths or crowns deteriorated quickly, which is why when, when Peter and Paul speak of the imperishable crown, that was a striking image for first century believers. Jesus is saying, don't let anyone rob you of your reward. Hold fast what you have. Well, what do they have? Let's recap. An open door to the kingdom of God that no one can shut. Membership in the people of God. The word of Jesus. Faithfulness to his name. The promise of vindication against their persecutors. Protection during worldwide tribulation. In the face of opposition, it's critical they hold fast. Keep the word of Jesus. In Romans 11, Paul explains that the script was flipped on the Jews. Gentiles coming in ahead of them like wild olive branches. But remember, what, what, remember, Paul quickly addresses these Gentiles right after he says that. He says, don't be arrogant. <laughs> if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Something like that could be said of all those in God's Favor. Don't be arrogant. Don't presume upon God's favor. Don't be complacent. Don't sit back and assume. As we saw in Hebrews many times, we need to be moving forward, remember, in the faith. Don't go into neutral. Hold fast. And then in verse 12, to the one who conquers, he will make them a pillar in the temple of my God. This is a great image. The temple is the dwelling place of God. We read later in chapter 21 that the new Jerusalem will have no literal temple because God's presence and glory is everywhere. To be a pillar in the temple then symbolizes the stability and permanence in eternity in God's presence. Immovable status in the presence of God. Also, to be a pillar is to be honored. When we say uh, someone's a pillar of the community, we mean they're honored in the community. At Coors Field, as you walk through the concourse, you see giant banners of previous various Rockies players, former MVPs, on the pillars on the concourse, honored by the Rockies community. These believers are dishonored by their community, but they will be honored as pillars in the great community of the saints, dwelling with God forever. The rest of verse 12 speaks of new names promised to the believers. We've seen some of these in previous letters, so I won't dwell on them. But one here, uh, the name of the city of God, the New Jerusalem. An, An interesting historical context for this name. Philadelphia frequently had earthquakes. There was one significant earthquake in 17 A.D., And the emperor Tiberius gave tons of money to rebuild the city. And the city's name was changed to Neo-Caesarea, the city of the new Caesar. That name stuck for 30 years. Later to honor another emperor, the city's name was changed again, along with a a temple worshiping the emperor. Jesus says one of the names that will be written on them is the new Jerusalem, the everlasting city of the living God that never changes. Nothing can change any of this, in fact since he has the power to fulfill his promises. What an encouragement to these believers. Now, with the remainder of our time, I just want to dig a little deeper on some application for us this morning. Two things, generally. First, hold fast his promises. 
I love this image in verse 9 that Jesus gives to these persecuted brothers and sisters. A, A vision of all those who persecute them coming, bowing down, and Jesus saying, with with all his power and glory clearly seen, hey, persecutors trembling on the ground, look at me. I love him. I love her. What a beautiful image. Wow. We may be rejected here, brothers and sisters. Who cares? We're loved by the one that matters, and we will be vindicated. The doors may close in our face one day. Some are closing already, aren't they? from social media, from the government, from political parties, from the workplace. The door may close even in our face, even from the evangelical church. But the door to the kingdom is secure. Nothing can take that away. And God will preserve his people, even through death. Even if we're physically tortured, we will be spiritually protected. We will overcome. We will be made a new a pillar. We will enter the new Jerusalem. We will never be removed from his presence. That's what we have. But we need to hold fast, don't we? Jesus says, hold fast what you have. We have a part to play in our perseverance. We saw this clearly again in Hebrews, didn't we? They're his promises. He fulfills them. He provides the power. But we need to hold fast. Our staying power even comes from God. But we need to have faith that endures. And there's certainly mystery in this dynamic, to be sure. But we're called to obey. And that's important. We're called to work with his power working in us. And we act. We press on with diligence to the very end. One helpful insight for me personally in this mystery, in this regard, came through a book I, I read this summer. A great book on the kingdom of God by Nicholas Perrin. Because the subject is the kingdom, he had some great insights on the Lord's prayer. When the Lord taught us to pray for his kingdom to come. This is a a model prayer, of course. The Lord gives us the elements and principles so rich in that model. Should inform and constitute our prayers daily. In particular, as it relates to this, I found his comments helpful in the last part of the prayer. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. This is a prayer with the end in mind. It's a prayer for perseverance. It's a prayer to finish the race. It's a prayer to hold fast his promises. Think about it. What could get in the way of our enduring faith and instead lead us to apostasy? Well, temptation can get in the way, can't it? In fact, we see this in the parable of the seeds that Jesus tells to illustrate this. Someone starts out strong. But suffering tempts her to abandon course. It's too hard to follow Jesus. Or temptation toward a self-centered path can get in the way. And the enemy can get in the way, can't he? He prowls around like a lion, Peter tells us. In our own strength, we don't stand a chance. So we constantly plead with our Heavenly Father, I want to finish strong. I need your strength. I want enduring faith. I need your protection. I want to hold fast to your promises of perseverance. So please, Father, do not leave me to my own devices when battling temptation because I know I would fail. I need your Holy Spirit. I need your strength. And I don't stand a chance against the evil one on my own. I need your power. Deliver me 
I want to run the race of faith and finish well. I want to finish strong. I want to demonstrate enduring faith. So we plead with our Father daily, as Jesus instructed us to do, that we might hold fast his promises. Finally, this morning, Orchard Bible Church is weak, but he is strong. Jesus says to this church, you have but little power, yet you've kept my word. Love that. God is more interested in faithfulness, isn't he, than the appearance of success. From a purely human standpoint, the unbelieving Jews in Philadelphia had all the power because they had the synagogue. It was hard for these believers to not have the synagogue on their side. The synagogue was the power broker in those days. What about us? Who moves the needle of power and influence in our context? Who do you want on your side? The government? Political party? The academy? Smart people in universities? Hollywood movies and TV narratives to portray Christians more favorably? The press, the media, or Jesus? Jesus holds the keys. He's the powerful one. He's the one that matters. The unbelieving Jews in Philadelphia had the synagogue, but Jesus has the key to the kingdom. Hamilton contrasts these, what we see in our passage. The Jews have the synagogue. Those who belong to Jesus and keep his word will be made pillars in the presence of God and will never Leave. They will have God's name written on them. The Jews have the synagogue. Those who belong to Jesus and keep his word will have the name of God's city, the new Jerusalem, written on them. They will have Jesus' new name written on them. God's favor is the one that matters. Now, one thing that's obvious, but we could miss it, especially if we've been duped by the false prosperity gospel is that the struggles upon these believers in Philadelphia were not their fault. They were faithful, Jesus says, yet enduring much conflict from those outside the church. They were outcast, denigrated, and mocked by the rich and powerful. As Osborne says, we must not allow the world to determine the criteria for success. The church at Laodicea, which we will consider next week, may have been thriving by worldly standards, but they were spiritually dead. Keener says the fact that Christians have little power counts in their favor before God. Power is easily abused, but weakness often leads to dependence on God's power. This is such a prominent theme in the scriptures, is it not? God favors the humble and opposes the proud, James 4. He chooses the weak things to confound the wise, 1 Corinthians 1. His countenance is with the one who's completely dependent on him, and he's far from the self-sufficient, Isaiah 66. Let me give you one striking illustration of this theme in the Gospel of John. Andreas Kostenberger points to the stark contrast between Nicodemus in John 3 and the Samaritan woman in the very next chapter. John, the author, clearly juxtaposes these two stories to emphasize, in part, the very point that we're making this morning. Let me list some of the contrast between these two people who have conversations with Jesus. 
First, Nicodemus was a man and she was a woman. That's obvious, but the status differences in a first century culture were stark. Second, he was a Jew. She was the hated hybrid race, a Samaritan. Third, he was the teacher of Israel, and she's not even named, no name given. Fourth, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the highest Jewish court, a ruler. She was a nobody. Fifth, Nicodemus knew the scriptures. He was an expert. While it's clear from the Samaritan woman's comments that her understanding was basically mired in folklore and tradition. Sixth, he was the epitome of morality, at least to an outside observer, while she was in an illicit relationship with a man, having illicit relationships with five previous men. Many English translations say husbands, but the Greek can just be men, which is more likely as it would have been very strange to have actually married five times in that culture. Finally, he came by night and she at noon. As Kostenberger says, if you're keeping score, it's seven nothing Nicodemus. But here's where we see this dramatic reversal of spiritual blessing. It's clear from Nicodemus's questions and Jesus' responses that he's clueless. But the Samaritan woman has profound spiritual understanding. First, she perceives that he's a Jew. Then after Jesus speaks, she perceives that he's a prophet. And finally, she proclaims him to be the Christ. While Nicodemus fades silently into the night, she bears witness in broad daylight. Nicodemus is shown to be silent, lacking spiritual understanding, while the Samaritan woman becomes a successful evangelist. Isn't that just like Jesus? She had but little power. This kind of reversal is found throughout the scripture. Spiritual blessing often found in those who are weak, those who lack power, those who lack status, those who lack prestige in the world. Paul says to the believers in Corinth, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Let's say a reporter came to Orchard, sent here from the editor of the New York Times to observe what's going on, what's happening here. Reporting, Centennial, Colorado, a couple of hundred no-names meeting (laughs) to hear what the Bible says about their lives. They shared some kind of weird meal with crackers and juice. The oratory skills of the man speaking on the platform, most unimpressive. Unimpressive people, unimpressive building, unimpressive community, unimpressive clothing, with a few exceptions. They seem to believe what they're singing about. But the lyrics fixated on this one person, namely Jesus. And I could be wrong, but I'm not predicting any Grammy Awards. Dear editor, I don't know what I was sent here to find, 
But there's nothing going on here that is newsworthy. Let me give you some examples of the kinds of things that would never be reported in the New York Times. The word of God spoke out of the book of Hebrews to a desperate woman at the end of a rope and gave her the strength to run the race of faith to the very end. The Holy Spirit convicted a husband during pastoral counseling to confess sin to his wife and to begin to sacrificially lead in his marriage and family. A young woman is invited by a co-worker to Christmas Eve, and her eternity is changed. Several women praying in a Bible study, and God supernaturally changes an unbeliever's disposition in a strained relationship at work. Inexplicable. A young man gives his life to Christ and is baptized in front of his new church family and begins to instruct his children in the things of God. A high schooler is invited by a friend to youth group and by the influence of a youth leader understands for the first time the Bible's relevance in her own life and decisions. A missionary is called, empowered, equipped, and sent to a foreign land that many might learn the good news about Jesus in their own language. As Sam Albury says, the news feed in heaven is quite different than the news feed on earth. Demonstrations of God's power, brothers and sisters, come through our weakness, not our strength. By his power, we, the unimpressive and weak Orchard Bible Church, are equipped to do eternally significant things. And my brother, my sister, You are a part of that. You have but little power, but keep his word. You may be teaching Sunday school to third graders. You may be leading a prayer group for men. You may be practically serving someone in your home group, and you're not listed in the who's who of Denver, Colorado. But by God's grace, you are unshakable pillars in the new Jerusalem. So hold fast what you have. Please stand with me as we close. If you're here this morning and are not a Christian, I want to invite you to become a member of the family of God. I can't make that happen. But Jesus can and he will. He holds the keys. If you turn from living for yourself and embrace him as your master and your savior. Humble yourself and acknowledge your absolute weakness. Ask him to forgive your sins and he will because he's able through his powerful death and resurrection. And he will give you his Holy Spirit to indwell you and provide for you this power to live for him in this life as we await this great, glorious kingdom, which will never end. No one can enter without Jesus. And with Jesus, no one 
And I mean no one can take you out. Father, thank you so much for the power of Jesus Christ. We would be nothing without him. Thank you for using us. Thank you for using this church like you used the church in Philadelphia for your glory and your glory alone. May we never forget our absolute dependence on you. Father, for those here who are outside the family, outside the kingdom, may they be born again today. May they turn to you, Lord Jesus, as their Messiah, Lord, their Master, their Savior, their King, that they might be with you forever and with all of God's people on that great day. It is for Jesus' sake and for his glory alone we pray. Amen.